Welcome to Living the Present Moment with Dr. Joel Ying. This episode is recorded live Wednesday, November 21st, 2018. On this series, I interview people of passion and purpose doing interesting things, living the present moment. I'm your host today, Dr. Joel Ying. I'm a physician, educator, storyteller. Join the mailing list, visit the blog and calendar at livingthepresentmoment.com. That's livingthepresentmoment.com. Today's topic is biodynamic farming, and my guest today is Katie Alemo, otherwise known as Ken, of Harvest Bee Biodynamic Farms. Katie was born in Rochester, New York, and moved to Naples at 15 years old. He went to college at Syracuse University and finished his degree at University of Florida in history. From there, he took several turns to get to his current passion of Harvest Bee Biodynamic Farms, where he's the manager and owner. The farm is certified naturally grown. It's an organic farm, and it's here in Naples, Florida. I was curious from that history, uh, how you got into a passion for organic farming? It's a really good question. I get that all the time. Um, I think most people, when they hear of a... uh, younger person, although as the years go by, I get older and older, what (laughs) would have gone on in your life to make you want to become a farmer, especially for somebody who went to school and got their degrees and did the whole socially norm, quote unquote, or socially acceptable pathway to to have a profession. But um, really, uh, you know, I I, I think that my history degrees were more of a... um, tool to have a good time in college. You got to pick a degree somewhere. Um, and I enjoyed history, uh, but I really didn't see myself doing much with it. So, um, while other various events went on following college, eventually, as I was thinking about what I wanted to do, what I wanted to do, I was always very interested in a blog that my friend up in New York in the Adirondacks um, would post on a weekly basis regarding his farm. And uh, the images and the descriptions and all the stuff that he would write about was just, it, it touched something. I wouldn't say that I would necessarily have thought about being a farmer at that point, but there was something there. And then uh, I've always been a lover of cooking and food, period. So originally I actually thought about and wanted to become a chef and go to culinary school Um but the straw, if you will, was when I read Michael Pollan's Omnivore's Dilemma. And I think at that point, um, after really understanding the food pathways and food problems and um, food issues that we have in this country and, and around the world, um, trying to figure out what real food really is, um, I said maybe growing food is really where I want to be. And that's what I want to do. And I was lucky enough right about that time to get set up with a uh, fellow in town who had a piece of land and was looking for somebody to turn it into an organic farm. And um, I started that with a buddy of mine. It was Wild Heritage USDA certified organic farm. Um, We started that back in 2011, 2012. Uh, And then uh, about four years, five years later, after doing pretty well for a new farm, um, I decided to break away and um, go completely solo uh, and attempt to try some more 
um, strictly organic principles. Um, I could talk more about that later, but that's essentially the evolution of how I became a farmer. Wow. How old were you? you I was, let's see, when I first put my, see, now I started off probably about 2010 playing around with small gardens and putting seeds in the ground. So uh, I guess you could say I put my first seed in the ground when I was about 27, 28 years old. Um, And I was 28, 29 when we started Wild Heritage Farm. So uh, I guess I was a little late in the game in some respects. I've known a lot of farmers that started long before that, but uh, when you look at the demographics of farming in, in America specifically and understand that a lot of the farming, uh, we've got, a, we've got a, a problem on our hands with local organic farming in this country because a lot of those farmers are older and working their way out. So we need more young farmers. So I feel privileged that uh, even if I would have liked to get in into the game a little bit earlier, that I got into it early enough where I've got hopefully a long life of growing food ahead of me. Oh, wow. And uh, kind of funny, you talked about that blog that really piqued your interest, but you came from a history degree. So how did you make that transition to learning about growing food? Well, yeah, well, I mean, and I should give them a shout out. It's a fledging crow farm up in the Adirondacks and uh, one of their farm managers, owners, Ian Ader. Um, I grew up with him and, uh, little does he know uh, what kind of influence he's had on my life, uh, not just with farming, but um, now specifically with farming. He's a, a contemporary of mine, and yet I would consider him to be an inspiration and a role model when it comes to farming. Um, hmm. I, I don't really know. There was, there was, I, I can't tell you, Doc, what, what, what it was. It was just that, like I said, there was something in my soul, if you will, uh, that when I was reading those blogs, you feel something. I don't know how to describe that. Mm. But what I do okay. know is that when I picked up that book by Michael Pollan, uh, it, it, that, that's something within me just went to a whole different level. And I said, why not? Uh, why not? You know, I, I grew up kind of always being labeled as a hippie in high school and, uh, going to see fish and listening to Grateful Dead before soccer games and all that kind of stuff. And I, I think there's some connection between that lifestyle and an organic living. Um, so again, there was always, I think, to use the analogy, seeds in there. They just weren't <laughs> getting enough watered until, um, and maybe not enough sun either until the cards were set before me and stars were aligned and yada, yada, yada. And, and I just, I kind of made that decision to go um, full speed ahead with growing food. That's probably not wow. the answer that most people want to hear, but and it's a very vague answer, but that's the only way I can really describe it. It was a, uh, it was a feeling. Oh, very cool. So you were just following the calling. That's it. That's it. Oh. And it sounds like uh, you really learned through mentorship and sort of on-the-job training, if you want to call it that, uh, figuring stuff out as you go along. Is that what you'd say? On-the-job training, yes. Um, I, I, the irony is um, the University of Florida has one of the best agriculture schools in the country, 
and Syracuse when I was there. Um, right on Syracuse's campus is one of the top environmental schools in the country. And yet here I am reading about George Washington and Franklin D. Roosevelt and, and, you know, totally ignoring the fact that there's these opportunities right here. But I just didn't know at the time. I didn't know. It wasn't there. What I, like I said, there was no water and there was no sun for those seeds. So um, sometimes I don't have any regrets. I had, like I said before, I had a great time going through college. Um, but I, I, I would say that there's always thoughts within me, you know, questioning where would I be now had I gotten that actual education. But then the other side of me says, you know, like anything in life, I think when you actually do it yourself and are physically there in the moment, putting that seed in the ground instead of reading about how to put a seed in the ground. Um, sometimes you fail by doing things physically, but I think that is really how you learn the most is, is if you really love to do it, you, you embrace the failures and, and accept them for the learning experiences that they are and you grow and you grow. And now I'm, you know, I tell people all the time, kind of half jokingly, um, one of the only things I've learned about farming at this point in my life is that I don't know anything about it but I'm learning every <laughs> single day. And I think I've gotten to a point where I can at least say I succeed more than I fail, um, whether it's with a given crop or financially or just the whole makeup of farming in general. Um, but I still got a long ways to go so that I can sit there and, and really minimize those failures. But I, I embrace those failures. I'm thankful for them. I think they're learning moments. I think that's where... Um, when I wake up in the morning and I say and give to the energies of the world to, to allow me to be humble enough, patient enough, and quiet enough to listen to what the soil tells me, um, I think that is essentially what the soil is telling me. Like, hey, this crop might not work here, but you're going to learn and you're going to mm -hmm. become better in the long run for it. So, Wow, that's a, a beautiful way in which you're sort of getting in touch with the earth and, and uh, farming and food. I, I read Michael Pollan's book a, a long while back. I can't remember now, but it, what always shocked me is just uh, not just we as a culture, but me personally, I'm disconnected to my food and where it comes from and uh, a lot of the facts about it. So I was, I was just fascinated by the whole, whole thing. You know, it's, a, it's actually a great point. Um, the whole idea of, of, connecting with food. I grew up saying, you know, a blessing at every meal with my family. Mm. And yet it was just words. And to this day, when I say with my family and we say a blessing, sometimes it feels like just words. But when I put together this abundance of arugula that I had this week and said, what am I going to do with this? Uh, should I go sell more of it? Should I bring it to the market? I put it about two pounds worth into a bag and took it home and made a load of pesto and put it on some pasta a couple nights ago. And I'm just saying to myself, this is the connection. You know, the, the, the words are important, I guess, but when you're actually eating it and feeling something that you grew, I, I, I hope that that's what the people that buy our food are saying and thinking to themselves as well that 
we're we're supporting this. We're 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 wanting to buy from these local farmers because maybe we don't have the time to do it, or maybe we don't have the resources to do it. But we respect and we admire those that are growing it, and they too can feel that energy. So, um, it, it just you, that just hit my head. I literally was just thinking about that the other night. That that whole idea of connecting food, and and the other part of connecting food too is understanding the area that you live in. Uh, specifically mm. when we live in a tropical environment down in here in Florida. Uh, and this is where I think the history starts coming into play for me, is understanding the history of who was here before us, what types of food they were growing, because people have had to grow food since the beginning of time in order to survive. And along the way, we've found a lot and discovered and, and, and reinvigorated to some extent some of these old crops, for example, like a seminal pumpkin variety, well, it's a seminal pumpkin variety because it is exactly the pumpkin that the Seminoles and other tribes native to Florida grew when they were here. Mm. Um, that, that is different than growing any other pumpkin variety or squash variety for me because I feel like I am walking in the soil and the footsteps of generations upon generations before me. And again, I can't describe that feeling. Um, but it is a feeling that convinces me that when something fails, remember this right here, and this is why you do what you do, is, is that connection. Because really in life, I mean, what, what better thing is there than connecting with something or somebody uh, and feeling like you're a part of something else? Um, it's awesome. It's, it's, I don't know how to describe it in any other way. Yeah, that's great is we come into thanksgiving and people will be saying prayers over meals to really think about where food comes from you know it's not <laughs> yes the children are like oh they come from the supermarket but <laughs> right right really and how often do we do that i mean especially with thanksgiving uh being tomorrow how often do we sit there at the table and of course we thank each other for family and friends and jobs and even the food on the table but how often do we have a conversation about where that food on the table came from? Mm. Um, it's definitely a, a conversation I think needs to uh, be thought about and, and perhaps talked about um, because we, I, again, like I said, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing the way I'm doing it if I didn't think that there was a problem in general with the way food is being grown uh, in our country um, or else if I didn't have a problem with it, I would be growing food that way. Cause it's probably a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. I love uh, in when I think about food and I sit with folks to really think about not just the hands that prepped the food, but the hands that brought the food to the table and it really connects me all the way back and, makes me think about that that history of where this food is coming from and 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 beyond what we can get from the supermarkets and everything shipped shipped from all over really realizing the rhythms of what grows locally and what's here i I remember talking to another farmer at a farmer's market once in florida here and going well what do you grow in the summer and they're like nothing it's too hot i was like wow i'm completely disconnected from the seasons here (laughs) I didn't even think about that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and you know, food tastes good, right? And 
Mm-hmm. If we can make it taste even better and feel better, I mean, come on. I mean, there's no reason why we can't indulge ourselves with food. I just think we need to think about it differently and how we're indulging ourselves with it. Um, I think indulge might be a better word, and, and perhaps the, the word that would be used with how we look at food now is gorging ourselves in food, and uh, I'm not quite sure mm-hmm. that that's, that's how food is supposed to to be and and like you said you 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 feel like you need to educate yourself a little bit more on on how food is grown here but i i think we all do i i think that's you know that's that term that they use in in france and and regarding wine and understanding the terroir of where and how and what is growing there what the soil is what makes it different um i just had an actually a a chef out at the farm yesterday and he looked at you. You'd think that if anybody knows food, it would be chefs. But the chefs know food. They don't necessarily understand the plant. They see the cucumber coming in as a cucumber. They don't see the cucumber plant coming in. And I had uh, the chef ask me if a, a row of cucumber vine was peppers because they saw one of the fruits on the vine. And we do a lot of heirloom varieties of, of various uh, vegetables. And it was a cucumber, yellow, that kind of looked like a pepper. And he had just never seen a yellow cucumber before. And he asked if that was a pepper plant. And I kind of like looked at him like, man, no, that is not a pepper. That is a cucumber. <laughs> and I just said to myself, wow, you know, there, there, there is a, we all need to be educated. I think, you know, chefs, uh, consumers, and even us farmers, we, we ourselves need to be educated uh, as much as possible to really know what this food is. Hmm. Can, can you talk a little bit about the, the words biodynamic farming? I hadn't heard those before, and I saw that on your card. Sure. Um, well, in order to talk about it, it needs to be prefaced with why I went this. Um, I would call ourselves a quasi-biodynamic farm right now because we are not, although we use primarily biodynamic principles, we are not certified um, by uh, Detmer Biodynam- Biodynamics yet. Um, there's a three-year waiting period for it, and we're on our we're going into our third year now. Um, but uh, as I said previously, I was at Wild Heritage Farm. We were certified by the USDA. Um, one of the, if not the main reason why I left that partnership, and it was a cordial departure, but. Um, we disagreed ultimately on what organic actually meant. And at the same time, I disagree with a lot of what the definition of organic is by the USDA. I think that the USDA has really done a fine job of being lax on the principles of organics uh, for no other reason than to allow as many of the big farms, uh, the big agriculture to uh, change a lot of their methods or products to be somewhat organic um, in order for them to get a piece of the pie because for them it's about money. Um, and I'm not saying there's anything necessarily wrong with that. I'm, I'm in it to make money as well and to make a living, but not the expense of changing what I think real food is. Um, mm. I, and and that also needs to be said that, and I've gotten into, I've I've rubbed some, uh, people the wrong way, some other farmers the wrong way that are certified by the USDA who, who say they are doing all the right things. 
said, you guys are not the people I have a problem with. There are some great certified organic farmers by the USDA, even within uh, South Florida on both coasts that I know are doing a phenomenal job of growing food um, the way I think it should be grown. Um, but the fact of the matter is there's a whole lot of people that are a whole lot of farmers that are not growing food the right way, but are able to put a USDA label on it because by definition they meet the organic certification. Uh, but like I said, the USDA is allowing chemicals to be used that should never be involved in organic farming. And they're allowing, they're allowing methods to be used that should never be allowed in organic farming. So, as I started thinking, my first thought was just to get rid of the certification uh, and just, you know, have an open-door policy. People could come and see what we're doing. There's no law that says we have to be USDA certified. Um, there's just a law stipulating when you can use that word organic. So we're allowed to use the word organically grown, but we can't use the word organic in what we do because the USDA actually has uh, ownership of that word. Uh, it's so twisted the way it works, but the bottom line is, um, I thought about having an open door policy. Uh, people come, they see what we do. They believe what we do. It's that simple. And then, uh, along the way, I started reading more about this biodynamic principle biodynamics in a nutshell. Um, there's, there's a couple components that in my, uh, view make it above and beyond organic. Uh, first of all, when we, we're going back to what we were talking about with connection, uh, there's much to do with biodynamic farming regarding planting and various farm activities that are associated with cycles of the moon. Um, now, I will be honest, I'm not sure if all of them necessarily make sense when you're a small farm um, trying to make a living, for example, on a, on a given moon cycle, that's when you're supposed to harvest. Well, we can't harvest three weeks in advance of a market because that food won't last. This is fresh food that we want to harvest and bring to the market as soon as possible to get into people's stomachs as soon as possible. Um, but essentially the idea is, I think Rudolf Steiner, who came up with this biodynamic principle um, in the early 20th century, uh, what he was, what he was expressing was the need to get back to connecting with the food that we grow. And one of the ways we do that is by engaging in activities that are associated with nature. Um, there's certainly a lot of principles, uh, regarding any given moon cycle temperatures and climate and what kind of climates happen during those moments. And that's why they encourage you to do certain activities with those moon cycles. Um, there's also the other component of biodynamic farming is uh, focusing very heavily on composting and making your own compost. There's various methods of composting that they encourage. Uh, but again, the basic understanding for those people that really want to get a, a very uh, easy and simplistic understanding of what is biodynamic farming, it's the idea of making your own inputs. Um, they make organic fertilizations, but I'm not sure I really trust those organic fertilizations if I know the companies that are making them. When they're certified organic by the USDA, and I know that there's loopholes involved in that certification, I'm not sure I, I, I really believe that what's in that organic product for sale on the shelf is exactly organic. What I do know 
is that when we make our own compost or when we make warm tea out of our warm castings, essentially our warm poop, um, I can tell people exactly what's going in their food. When we take the chicken manure from our chicken coop area and mix it in with the compost and let that break down, I can tell people and show people this is what we're using, this is what we're doing. Um, I believe it creates healthier plants, yes, but really what it does is create healthier soil. I tell people oftentimes if, you, if there was one streamline sentence that I could use to explain the difference between biodynamic farming or regenerative and sustainable farming as opposed to USDA organic farming, it's that I think that generally speaking, USDA organics encourage farmers to grow plants. What we do is try to grow the soil. And by virtue of having healthy soils, the plants will naturally come. So we're really soil farmers more than we are food farmers. The food is just the byproduct of having healthy soil and where we get the income mm. from. So uh, that is probably the biggest difference between us and, and most other farmers is that we not only make our own compost, but we legitimately and as much as possible, only try to use our own compost at all costs. So, and, and from an economic side of that, that basically cuts down our costs as well. The worm, worms are creating free poop. Chickens are creating free poop. We can turn that all into compost and food for the plants at no cost. So uh, for all those, and this is a different discussion altogether, but for all those people out there that are thinking about getting into farming, and don't know, you know, if they'll ever make money. Well, sometimes you make money by saving money, and that is really what we try to do in our farm economic system is to try to save as much money as possible to add into whatever the income that we, we get in a given season. Ah, okay. You know, it's sort of... And that being said, sorry, and that being said, we, while we don't have the biodynamic principle yet, we do, we are now certified uh, by Certified Naturally Grown, which is a... Uh, certification, well-known certification um, agency, not associated with the government, um, but we believe is much more specific to the organic principles that that we believe in. Hmm. That's fascinating. So there's a biodynamic certification, there's a naturally grown certification, then the USDA organic certification. And there's actually even more certifications than that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and in fact, uh, another one um, uh, you might be familiar with, Rodell Institute. Uh, I'm not sure if they if they've instituted yet, but I know they were working on uh, and working with Patagonia to come up with what they were going to call a regenerative certification. Uh, And again, it's the same idea. Certificate the bio okay. the uh, biodynamic certification, the CNG certification, the regenerative certification. What they essentially are are responses to people having questions about the USDA label and saying we want something that is more organically specific. Hmm. And, and so what 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 do you when we go to the store and something's labeled organic? What actually what actually can we say about that? Well, you know, I mean, if, if, personally, like when I go to the store. What's the minimum that you know about something that's organic on the shelf? And it's hard. You don't know. I mean, because so much on the shelves now is so streamlined. It's, it's, 
uh, Kellogg's and Post and Coca-Cola and all these big corporations own the majority of the products, the organic products you see on the store. So it kind of goes in line with what I was saying earlier about how streamlined organic has become. And when you know Coca-Cola owns this organic product, it might be labeled as whatever it's labeled and have the nice bucolic photo of a farm on it. But essentially it's owned by Coca-Cola. So I'm looking at that product and saying, okay, what really is it? Uh, Kirigenic is in a lot of organic products. Um, caramel color I've seen in some organic products. Those things should not be in any organic product. Um, hmm. So you don't know. But at the same time, you know, I'm sure people read about this, hear about this. I did a lecture a couple years ago at a, a food and thought at a grocery store in town about um, – the problems with the USDA label. And I could see in some people's eyes that they were just like, well, what do we eat now? Sand and rock? I mean, what, what, what's going on? I said, no, I don't think you necessarily have to live that life. I think that uh, when push comes to shove, uh, if you see something organic, it's, it's most likely better than what you're going to eat if it's conventional, if you care about that stuff. Some people don't care. Um, but if you care, I would, I would say when you go to the store and you eat cereal, then find an organic cereal, if that will make you feel better. But if you have the option or the ability to purchase food from a local farmer, then that's your best option. And I'm not just saying that uh, from because I am a local farmer. I'm not uh, – I mean, of course I'm going to say that, but – um, it's, if I wasn't, and, and that's how I really, before I was even a farmer, I started buying food from Farmer Nick and in Yoni Organic Farm here in town. And I started kind of changing my lifestyle to adapt to, okay, you know, this farmer here in town has got things that I'm not necessarily used to eating, but I, from what I'm reading, this is supposed to be better for me than what I'm buying at the store. And I loved it. I loved going to the farmer's market and talking to Nick and learning about farming and what he was doing and, and, and trying this, this uh, different variety of, of Asian greens or whatever. Um, mm. You know, it's, it's not easy. I don't even I want to begin to suggest that this is an easy lifestyle for the farmer or the consumer. Um, but if we're willing to put the money into that expensive car, and then we should probably be willing to put the money into that possibly more expensive piece of food. Or if we're willing to buy those yeah. expensive pairs of shoes, then hopefully we're willing to put our money into buying that more expensive food if we know that food is essentially better for us. Yeah, I, I know I, that sounds like preaching, but it is. No, I, I, I think, you know, the question is not, should we go out and buy all things organic? I think the question is that, we should be more educated about our food. Uh, I, I believe that we should stay away from the processed foods like cereals. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And very go to well the put, aisles you know? of, of more produce. And people equate organic today with healthy. And I think you can have organic cakes and cookies and still be unhealthy. You know, it's like sure, absolutely oh, healthy geez. choices. When I was a vegetarian in high school for about two years, all I did was ate bagels and Doritos. So, yeah, I stopped eating meat, but I was about <laughs> as unhealthy as I could be. I had a soccer coach tell me one time, I'd be happy to get you into whatever college you want to to play soccer, but you needed to lose a little bit of weight. That was a, kind of an eye-opening. So, 
certainly you can wow. live what you think is a healthy lifestyle, but essentially if you're not, I mean, you, you make a great point. Uh, maybe it's not about organic versus conventional cereal. Maybe it's about not necessarily eating cereal and maybe eating some some grains in the morning or maybe eating some nice healthy fruit or uh, making a smoothie or something like that. I think that uh, absolutely we need we need to change that. Um, but, but again, it's not about us preaching to people. It's about educating on why you might want to consider doing that because uh, I don't yeah. think you're going to win anybody over by pushing things down uh, other people's throat. I, I agree, and I, I think these labels, you know, we pay somebody else to think for us and certify things, and really what we want to do is educate people and and uh, educate ourselves, really. I, I, uh, I love that you brought up Farmer Nick. He's uh, introduced me to lots of cool foods, and the farmer's markets are where I've seen locally grown food and organic stuff for the uh, you know, when I first was looking for stuff and new foods. Um, can you say a little bit about, you know, it seems like farmer's markets, are, and, and that's where I see you every Sunday down at, uh, uh, where, where are you, at Livingston and Pine Ridge? Yes, we're at Pine Ridge and Livingston on Sundays from 9 to 2. Um, it's been a very good market for us over the years. Um, organically twisted. Uh, food truck restaurant is in the same plaza, so a lot of people, and they have a very good following. Um, we do some work with Chef John over there, um, and he is somebody over the years that has always supported uh, my uh, aspirations for growing local food. Um, so it's kind of a nice little uh, one-two punch there where people come and want to get lunch there and stop by the market mm-hmm. stand. Um that is the only market uh, we do right now because we also have a uh, community-supported agriculture program. Uh, essentially, it's people that buy shares in the summer and when we're not growing food, but it starts generating an income for the farm to help us get started in the upcoming season. And then starting in the first week of December all the way to uh, the first week of May, they get a, a box of food every single week, which equals, if not surpasses, um, the amount that they pay for, which is usually a good thing. I don't think I've ever given uh, any CSA member in any given year less than what they paid for, but usually we try to shoot for the sky and, and give them more than what they paid for. It is, is kind of a token of gratitude, one of the many tokens of gratitude we have for them. Say, hey, thank you so much for doing what you did. Um, I, I, I honestly do not know how these people – do it, but they do, and we've had yeah, every year we get anywhere between fifty to seventy-five percent turnover. So these are people that that for many years now have bought into us early in the season, uh, year after year after year, and and <laughs> I'm blown away by it. Uh, but essentially, mm-hmm. running a CSA like that is like doing one to two more farmers markets. Um, but it's a more stable farmer's market. I mean, as much as we love the support at the farmer's market, in any given week, we could have a severe drop-off uh, for whatever reason. And, you know, you, you, you're growing food throughout that week with the expectation of bringing X amount to the farmer's market. Um, so that's, you know, when that food is set aside from the farmer's market, that might mean a chef here or a restaurant there or another consumer who can't make them, they might not have access to that food um, if they can't make it to the market because we've set aside. And then when Sunday comes and we don't get the traffic that we're hoping for, um, 
we have uh, we have we have a little bit of a problem. We have you know certain amount of food that we have to get somewhere. Um, of course, we can always turn it back into compost at the farm, which is what we do do sometimes. Um, but we want to make sure that we're making uh, the threshold of what we would consider to be a, a sustainable income. Um, but when we have people like uh, Juicelation, which is an organically cold-pressed juice bar in town, um, who we sell food to on the spot, they call us, you got this, yes, okay, bring it in. Um, what they also do is because they're juicing on a daily basis, is oftentimes we can call them up after the farmer's market and say, hey, we've got leftover this or leftover that, and they eat it right up. And that helps a lot to have uh, people like that, that, that realistically, um, Dan, Alexandra, the owner at Juicelation, she's a huge supporter of local organic food. So it might not necessarily be what she in the back of her mind say, I want, but because she knows the source, she, she, she finds a way to want it because she knows in her heart this is really what I want to use. So I'll find a way to use this one way or another, whether it's to throw it in the juice um, or, you know, through expansion, they've started to do other things besides just the juice. Um, but uh, again, what I'm getting at essentially is, is a, a long story long is that the farmer's markets are very finicky. Um, yeah. I love them. Uh, and I don't know if I foresee myself not doing them at any point. Um, but we understand that when you're only doing one farmer's market or you're only at the farmer's market one or two days during the week, that might be hard for people to get to. Um, but what we always try to tell people is if you really want this food, um, contact us. We'll find a way to work around it. When we're dropping off food at various places around town throughout the week, it can be very easy for us to go uh, and make one more stop or, or do whatever. We don't want to get into a habit of doing that, but if you're someone that comes to the market every single week and for one week or two weeks during the season, you might not be able to make it on that Sunday, uh, rather than saying, well, I guess I'm just not going to get the food because that's the only day they're there, contact us. We'll get you the food. If you want it, we'll get it to you. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And I talk a lot, don't I? <laughs> no, but thank you for telling us all the ways that a you know a locally sustainable farm can survive. Uh, not just the farmers markets, but like you said, um, the CSA, and then connecting to local organic businesses that will buy from you, and, and really connections. So it's really uh, the CSA is really our survival mode. Um, eventually, I'd like to get a point. No matter how much land I have. Um, you really can maximize, and there's a fine line too, because if you have X amount of land and you feel like you can get 500 to 600 CSA members, that might not necessarily be the most economic way of making a living as a farmer because 500 to 600 shares is a lot of labor and a lot of food to be grown. And when you have that much land and food growing, you're that much more susceptible to any type of problem that might arise, whether it's a natural occurrence or just a crop failure of some sort. So we're still trying to figure that out. I'm guessing that somewhere between 100 and 200 CSA members is really where I see myself in the future settling down. 
and uh, mixing in, like I've said before, farmers markets, restaurants, and chefs to beef up that income a little bit more. Um, but it, 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 it's so it's it's guaranteed money. Like I said, you know these people, what they essentially do is, uh, if you're a CSA consumer, and you're thinking about buying a share in June when we offer the shares, um, and we tell you you're not going to see your first box of produce until the first week of December. Well, there's also a qualification to that, and that's uh, we're expecting to not get blasted with a hurricane in the fall. And mm. as long as we don't get hit with that hurricane, then, then you'll get that first week of food in December. Uh, last year we got hit. Um, we got hit early right. enough right. that we were able to recover in time and we didn't miss a beat through the CSA, but it was a tough season. It was a long season. Mm. Um, we were definitely so overworked right. in the so fall. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's investing in the farm, but it's also taking risk in the farm. You know, it's buying stock is what it is. Yeah, buying stock. We're 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 not just buying your produce; we're buying your risk. (laughs) And And it's it's insane. It's you know, thinking about that, I'm I'm curious. I I think of you know, think of the the success story. You plant a seed, you grow a crop, you harvest, you take it to market. Like, what are the problems you encounter? Um, well, the, pro- the first and foremost, the problem I encountered in starting a new piece of land, um, and now I know this moving forward, because eventually I would like to move on um, or add on to the, the land I have now. Well, essentially, we're growing on two and a half acres, and ideally, I'd like to get up to about five or six acres to really implement um, everything that I want to in my ideal farm environment or setting. Um, but when I went from Wild Heritage Farm the Harvest Bee Farm, I kind of thought, you know, I left after year five at Wild Heritage, and I was just going to pick up and call it year six with Harvest Bee. Um, but on a new piece of land, you're starting over from scratch. Um, specifically with this piece of land we're on now, um, there was nothing grown on it. We basically tore up uh, sod and turned it into uh, soil that could whole vegetables. Um, but there was a lot of work that needed to be done to that. And going into year three, like I said, I have a better idea of what the soil in general will allow, as well as what different crops go well in different areas of that land. Um, I did not expect that. And that was foolish of me. That was naive of me. I should have thought about that. Uh, but for the first couple of years, we were probably only maximizing at best 50% of the area that we have at Harvest Bee. Um, but now, like I said, growing into year three, and, and when I stop to consider the struggles for the first three years, um, I, yeah, 50% was hard to make a living off of, and somehow we got through it. But at the same time, gosh, if this is 50%, what would 80 or 90% on a smaller piece of land look like? 80 or 90% of the land that we have would be a very, very healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Um, and that might beg the question, well, why would you want to ever get any bigger than that? Well, because I don't own the land that I'm, we're farming on at Harvest Bee right now. Um, our, our landowner, Chuck Ritter, is a, is a good friend of mine, and, and 
we always have healthy conversations on where we see going. He's been very supportive of the whole venture. He's added in over 150 fruit trees along the way to add into uh, what we're growing in the, in the vegetable field. Um, but eventually I would like to settle down on my own piece of land, build my own house, and, and, and you know, kind of do things 100% my way. Um, but I'm not there yet, and we're kind of moving in that direction. So I'd say that that was probably the biggest learning curve going to a new piece of land was really understanding and trying to get in tune with that soil. Of course, the other thing we deal with is is obviously any potential natural or weather-related um, problem is just what you accept as a farmer. And I've been through several of them. I've been through a frost, I've been through a hurricane, I've been through um, periods of very, very wet winters, wet and warm, when you're expecting them to be a bit, little bit cooler and drier. Uh, somehow you get through those. I, I, I don't know how, but you just do. You persevere, you realize, you wake up and you just say, hey, this is what it is. This, you accept this challenge, and eventually there's going to be something that happens uh, such as that next week after a frost, the amount of people that show up at your farm stand and don't even care what you have, but will buy anything you have just to support you. I mean, that, that kind of stuff blows my mind away. And that is, that is when you realize you're doing what you're doing, and it's something so much bigger than yourself. Because those people, they just want to support you and want to see you continue doing what you're doing. And when you're sitting there after a frost wanting to quit and throw everything against the window and walk away and go to law school, it's those people and their humble support that really encourages us to keep on moving forward. So um, understanding the land, weather-related issues, and um, as we kind of explained in, uh, a couple minutes ago, the whole dynamic, the economic dynamic of a farm, uh, we live in an area in Naples where it's not Portland, Oregon. It's not Vermont. It's not even close to being where I grew up in New York, where uh, I, I think that supporting local organic farming is really established in the fabric and the grain of, of those communities. We're a growing community in that respect. Um, and we've had to really kind of uh, embrace this journey and say, hey, we could go to those areas that I just mentioned, and we could be a little fish in a big pond, or we could do something and be a part of something down here that is kind of new. And 20 years from now, if it goes in the right direction, which I hope it will and think it will, um, people like Nick and, um, God rest his soul, Frank Oaks and people that started this type of living down here, um, people can kind of look back on it and say, Hey, that, that there was, there was that, that's the foundation that was built. Um, mm -hmm. they were the ones that started this here long before there was any, semblance of a community so what that means now is as much as we like to ideally think that's where it's going to go when you stop and consider that we're really not there yet and yeah sometimes like i said there can be a struggle we might have a really good week at the farmer's market one week the following week we might not have such a good uh show and 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 that is what happens um but at the end of the day or at the end of the season uh, you're really looking to have a great year once every three years, uh, a pretty stable year, once every three years, 
And you just kind of, you don't hope for it, but you expect it, you embrace it, you deal with one every three, once every three years having kind of a rough season, and it all averages out at the end. My friend had this, her father had a farm, and she, he would wake up and say, you know, his eyes would glaze over, and he'd say, you know, I think a good season to plant green beans or something like that. And it would be. She said it was amazing. You know, years later, she found out how in tune he was with the land, just the weather and everything, and uh, that piece of property. When uh, he passed on, her brothers, three of them, tried to manage the property, and they couldn't. Like, three of them, you know. They'd been, they'd sent them to school, they'd been educated, but they just didn't, they weren't, they didn't get that in touch with the land sort of wisdom. And so I, I uh, appreciate the wisdom that you're accumulating uh, about the land and growing organically and keeping that alive for people and hopefully passing it on to other folks. And, and you make another great point real quick. When you, when you talk about understanding the land and, okay, what's going to grow great? And, and, and we might be able to grow, um, I'd use the example earlier of having a, bumper crop of arugula right now, more arugula than probably what we can sell. Um, but if that's what's growing well, that's kind of the next stage in the education process is people might want romaine lettuce because that's what they're used to using. Um, but how do we – but romaine's not growing right now. And, and, and just yesterday, I believe, the government put out a, a all-out notice that nobody should be eating romaine right now because of the E. coli breakout. Um, yeah, and kind of expressing and educating the people, we don't have romaine, but here's what we do have is arugula. So, yes, we need to be able to grow what the land is going to allow us to grow, but we also need people, we survive off of people understanding we might not have what you want, but we have this because it grows well. And while we do have a, a like I said, our CSA members, are essentially people that basically say, you grow whatever you can grow and we'll eat it. Um, but I think in order to really take this uh, mission where it needs to go, we probably need more in this community than what we have right now. And that's, again, that's on us. That's on us farmers to educate people. And, and hopefully along the way, that is where we, we go. Um, but it's one thing to be able to grow what you can grow. It's another thing for people to want what you grow too. Um, so yeah, yeah, we, we we work with that, we deal with that. That is a a, a challenge um, because we have. I think we live in a community that's probably more accustomed to being able to have access to whatever they want at the grocery store because that whole paradigm of growing food is totally and utterly different than the way we grow food. Um, but, you know, like my own mother, for example, she'll want strawberries every single week of the year, uh, even, no matter where they come from. And I tried to explain to her, well, well, Mom, you know, strawberries aren't really grown right now locally, but why not try to do something with the mangoes that are coming out in June that are, are beautiful and custardy and, and, and delicious? And, you know, some people, some people want them what they want and they're not going to change. And, and other people, I think, are, are willing to listen and try things out. And one's not right more than the other. But at the same time, when you, when you do what we do on a daily basis, 
the appreciation we have for those people that are trying out these new things and going outside of their comfort zone, um, it drives us on a daily basis. Mm. Well, that's great that you've established such a following. I, I also wanted to talk about your great logo and your name. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Say I um, that, what, what it means to you. Yeah. Well, the, uh, you know, I always said, um, you know, growing up, like I said earlier, I'm a big fish fan, love fish, love the band, uh, not talking about the food or the animal, but, but the <laughs> band, the music. Um, and, and the thing about them is, is they found a great way to brand their logo and going to fish shows and seeing the funky things that people did with the logos and the songs. It, it was a brand. It was, it was, the music is the music. Um, and our food is the food, but it's something more than that. We have a, a growing young population in, in uh, this community and, while they might not necessarily want the food or a lot of the food, what they do want is the camaraderie and the banding. Um, so, so I was very, it took me a long time to come to the logo that we essentially settled on as well as the name of the farm. I struggled with the name for a long time. Um, but the logo hit everything for me. It was the bee, the flower, the colors, um, the perfect shape, uh, and I think, uh, to tell you the truth, we found that lo- a similar logo, and I think I told you the other day, uh, online, and we worked with a graphic design artist locally um, who manipulated it so that it was legal and um, something that, that hit our um, buttons as far as what we wanted. The name... Um, God, I can't even, I don't even know. I mean, Harvest Bee, what is Harvest Bee? It doesn't even make sense, but it does. I mean, that's the point. Like, what we do doesn't make sense, but I guess it does. It's totally, if you sit down and and think about it, okay, well, this is why we're growing food the way we are because of the way it is over here, and we don't want that, and yada, yada, yada. Well, Harvest Bee is just, I mean, obviously, Harvest is what we do. That's essentially uh, game day for us is that for all the work we put in during the week, Saturday comes and that's our big harvest day. And that's when we kind of put on our cleats and put on our jerseys and go out there and, and try to score goals. But um, the B essentially is the fundamental principle of our farm. Um, we do have a growing apiary, although we're not really selling honey yet. That is a direction now that I'm gradually learning more and more every day about bees and um having bees as a part of this farm um man one of the big problems we're having in big farm big agriculture is is the lack of a presence of pollinators like bees um i've read and heard things about uh, the idea of creating robotic bees well i don't know if that's really the route we need to go like how about we just save the bees that we already have instead of trying to create these mm. robotic bees that will eventually probably tap into our uh, internet and tap into our phones and everything else, and then they'll be used in warfare, and we all know how that goes. So uh, the real living, buzzing bee is, I don't want to call it the mascot, I think that's a bad word, but it's, it's essential to what we do as a farm. And then in a given day, um, you know, walking the fields and seeing the bees on the flowers and and 
that work that they do, uh, it's really the, one of the defining principles for what real food to me is, is having the bees do the work uh, that they're supposed to do naturally and organically. So uh, we're trying to do our part by creating an environment where we can be not only stewards of the soil, but also shepherds of uh, defenseless beings like the bees who uh, we're losing um, far too rapidly right now. Um, mm-hmm. And that is yeah, why for anyone, we came up with that word. Oh, great. Yeah, for anyone out there, I've listened to some different NPR programs. I'm sure you can find different things about the plight of the bees, and it's really fascinating. You don't think of it's it's another ancillary part in farming. It's not thinking of the pollinators, and, and this program was talking about the fact that these big commercial farms have to get these bee trucks to come in with um, you know temporary bees to pollinate. It's like a real shortage and issue with farming. So and um, moving those bees, glad you're even that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and and I, I actually originally I. What our, the name of the farm was going to be the humblebee is kind of a play off a of bumblebee, um, <laughs> but that was already taken by uh, I believe like a, a soap product oh, okay. company up in Ohio. <laughs> Wait a second, <laughs> but whatever like, that was the case. And then, like I said, we just came up, we put two words together, and, and that's what we came up with. So uh, it's kind of goofy, kind of funny, kind of doesn't make sense, and uh, sometimes neither but does my fun. life. So I guess it works. <laughs> yes, it and it's fun. Too, you know, it's, it's fun. It, it creates questions and uh, tells people who you are and what you are. So I like it. Absolutely, and, absolutely. Uh, I know people can find you online on Facebook. Uh, they search for Harvest Bees uh, Finca, you told me, which is, I think, Spanish for farm, so Harvest Bees Finca. Um, any yep. other ways people can find you or look for you? Yep, on Facebook at Harvest Bee Finca, like you said, and we use that word Finca there as kind of a way to explain what we're doing because we are a small farm, bigger than a garden, smaller than the typical farm that you might think of, um, but not uncanny to other areas of the world, specifically in South and Central America, that do things like we do, and that's the term that they use. It's not a homestead. It's not permaculture. It's a finca. Um, so mm, on Facebook okay. at Harvest Bee Finca, and then also on Instagram at Harvest Bee Farms. Uh, you can find us on, on Instagram. Um, we, our website is not up and running right now, but essentially uh, – I'm not sure how many people use the websites anymore anyways. Most of the information uh, people get through social media at this point, so that's why we have a, a presence on there. It's not, um, it's not the best part of, of farming, um, but it is a necessary part in order to get the word out there as soon as possible. Mm. And, you know, thank you for sharing your, the wisdom you've collected over the years with farming, and I, I love that your journey has taken you from uh, you know, a, a big right turn into into a new direction, and I think that nothing's ever wasted. You know, whatever wherever the journey came from uh, brings you along the way. And uh, I'm curious. I, yeah. with, I was just curious with the whole journey. Like, what what would you say? Uh, you know, if you're gonna leave some last messages or things, what what would you say or uh, some things you've learned along the way? Well, what I learned along the way is, um, well, just, you know, like we talked about earlier, how I became a farmer. In life, 
I don't know if things are set in place for us and it's just our job to walk this earth and things will come or, you know, if we have the free will to do this or that, I don't know. Um, I don't know if that's an, a question that I necessarily even ponder anymore. Uh, what I think I do realize though is there's energies that we can't really describe and uh, I'm willing to put my faith in that. Um, and when you do, then you allow those energies to do what they're supposed to do, uh, which is kind of guide us along the way. You, you don't just sit there on the couch and watch TV. Um, you do what you need to do on a daily basis to move forward. But at the same time, you just understand that as much as we wake up in the morning and think the day is planned out, you wake up, take a shower, eat breakfast, go to work, come home, make dinner, whatever the case is, that at some point you might get in a car crash or it might be raining out that's going to prevent you from, from taking that walk or, or whatever the case is. Dog might get sick and you need to take him to the vet. you got to be ready for those. And most of the time we see those as really challenges, if not worse, just annoyances or, or hassles. But oftentimes it's those things that actually, like you said before, steer us in a different direction that might not necessarily have happened if we were allowed to choose it all on our own volition. Um, <laughs> be ready for those because those are the pathways mm. I think that really make us and create that life story for us and, and don't resist it. You know, it, of course it's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging, um, but let go of the resistance surrender. When you put on that B suit and you open up the B box, don't resist going into those B's. Let go, surrender, trust the suit. And I think that's a good analogy for the way we need to trust those energies is just, you know, mm. let the suit do its job and go ahead and have fun with those bees crawling all over you. Um, <laughs> I think that's the lesson that I've learned through all of this. I, I, I don't know where eventually I will be 20, 30, 40 years or no. I know what I'd like to be doing. I know I'd like to be doing this and being successful at it. Um, but who knows? We, we, we don't know. I can sit here and tell you with my heart and soul that when I was studying history in college, none of me thought I would be where I am now. So I'm not <laughs> even going to venture to guess where I'm going to be 20 years from now. Um, but I hope it's doing this. I hope that this is, uh, or at least something to do with this farming. Um, and I'm ready for it. Mm -hmm. I'm ready for it. Oh, beautiful. I get from that just listen to the calling and, you know, one step at a time, each step of the way, listen to the calling. Exactly. And that's a great point. Again, it's, it's great to let go, but you also need to sit there and one minute at a time, live in the present, enjoy the present, embrace the present and let everything else happen as it will be. Thank you again today to my guest, KT Alamo of Harvest Bee Biodynamic Farms. Certified Naturally Organic. Look them up on Facebook. You can find them at Harvest Bee Finca. And thank you again to everyone out there listening online to people of passion and purpose, doing interesting things, living the present moment. Again, I'm Dr. Joel Ying. Stay tuned for more for livingthepresentmoment.com. Again, livingthepresentmoment.com. Have a great day.